Before we get started, I'll put a little disclaimer that today's episode may, at times, cover sensitive topics, including but not limited to casualties during war, violence, addiction, suicide, and post-traumatic stress disorder. You are advised to refrain from listening if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Second, the views expressed are those of the pilots that flew the missions that day and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. And finally, if you or anyone you know is in crisis, call or text 988, which is the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, or the Veterans Crisis Line, which connects service members and veterans through a confidential toll-free telephone number. Hello, welcome to the 442nd Fighter Wings newest endeavor, our podcast. Um, we've had a little bit of discussions on what to call it. We were going to call it Hogcast, but recently um, some of the air crew or some of the pilots have decided um, Nasty Time may be a better, um, better name for the podcast. So anyway, let us know what you think. Um, we are unsure of what to call it, but just use the Connect Air Force Connect app and kind of submit, submit what you'd like it to be called. Um, So we haven't decided on the frequency yet, but we will try to do these before each of the UTAs. Um, We have a few goals of this podcast. One, we want to go over what is happening at the upcoming UTA. Uh, We also want to discuss what has happened operationally through like TDYs or deployments of the past month. Three, answer any questions we've received through the Air Force Connect app or in person. And finally, probably the, the largest part of the podcast is tell war stories or, um, you know, just throw an Im- invite out from people in our wing to tell their story or share an experience with us. So we realize that communication barriers in Facebook, Instagram, and our hog bites um, have, and we believe that this podcast will be another way to communicate within our wing and hopefully have some fun while we are at it as well. So with that, I'm Major Shelley Eckleby. I'm the 442nd Fighter Wing Public Affairs Officer and one of the co-hosts for today's Hogcast. The other co-host is none other than our boss, Brigadier General Steve Nestor. And we have two, we called them special guests, but they, they don't like that term. So not so special <laughs> guests. Um, Lieutenant Colonel John Carl Marks and Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Crack Rowe. Um, so they're both A-10 pilots within our wing And we're going to chat with them on some of their most recent accomplishments and maybe even get to a war story or two. So with that, um, General Nestor, the floor is yours. All right. Thanks, Shelly. No kidding. We're sitting in a a studio. And I want to thank you and and, uh, Bob Jennings for setting it up. It's awesome. We're like in a recording studio that they have on base. We didn't know they had it. Uh, I got the idea to do a podcast from a good friend of mine, Nate Parks, uh, Chief Parks who was a command chief at Grissom uh, Air Reserve Base. And he started a podcast called Fuel that I listened to, and it was highly entertaining. And he talked about how they had three or 400 uh, listeners uh, prior to each UTA, and it was a really good way to communicate to the young airmen. Uh, so I figured we'd try to do it here at the 442nd. Uh, I always talk about uh, what we want to do with the podcast. And like Shelly said, we want to educate and entertain, right? I, w- I want to educate folks on things that are happening in the wing, uh, at the at the previous UTA, at the upcoming UTA, and, and what's going on with the A-10. And I wa- I, we want to entertain people by having folks uh, like Crack and Kuda in, uh, telling stories about where they came from, uh, what they've done in the Air Force, and, and get to know folks. I tell people, hey, you can't lead people unless you don't know their stories. Everybody's got a story, 
and we can't lead if you don't know the story. We have some amazing stories of people in the swing that we're going to have on the podcast, some folks that just went to uh, Germany and did some stuff for the Ukraine war. Uh, we're going to talk to those folks, some folks in, in uh, newcomers that are, are brand new to the U.S. that joined the Air Force. We're going to have folks like that on. Uh, third and fourth generation people like the Bryants uh, and people uh, that are here whose folks worked here. We're going to have those folks on, just a lot of different people. So with that, uh, man, I want to thank Chief Berrien uh, and the folks, all the top three folks that ran our uh, OAY, uh, Outstanding Airman of the Year Awards at the February UTA, uh, and recognize some of those folks. First, uh, uh, Airman of the Year was Senior Airman Rob, uh, Robin Healy from CE. NCO of the year was Tech Sergeant Chris Winslow from Security Forces. A senior NCO was uh, Devontae Williams from Security Forces. Uh, senior Master Sergeant Don Johnson was the shirt first shirt of the year over an MXS. Uh, and then uh, for CGO was Captain Justin Sievers from Maintenance. And FGO was uh, Major Erica Cordes from uh, Wing Staff and the uh, MXS Squadron Commander. And Civilian of the year was Lavella, who works in FM, runs FM. So congrats to those folks. So for the March UTA, we, we don't have a lot right now for March, but um, hopefully in the future we'll have more stuff on promotions, retirements, and stuff. But right now, off the top of my head, the big thing that's happening in the March UTA is the OSS Change Command. Lieutenant Colonel Sims uh, will be handing that over to Lieutenant Colonel Hilkert in the Five Bay on Saturday uh, at, the, at the UTA. Um, so with that, um, last month we just got back from – uh, Florida, I think both these guys that are here, we can talk a little bit about that later. We did a CAS 3.0, uh, which is uh, close air sport training down in Avon Park in Florida. We flew 36 to 36 sorties. Maintenance was awesome, so we had 100% sortie effectiveness, so great job on, on that, that part. They integrated with F-16s, AC-130s, U-28s, UH-60s, some ISR platforms. They had JTACs running around on the ground and Marine guys doing uh, mortars. And then our maintenance guys also practiced the ATAC program, which is our multi-capable airman training. So we had guys that aren't crew chiefs uh, catching airplanes and, and fueling airplanes and doing different stuff. So it was a really good opportunity for us as a wing to train in the multi-capable airman uh, arena and get some good cast training down there. Um, also in, in February, General Radliff visited, and he, I think he got around almost every – Every unit, uh, and I know a, a lot of what's on your mind is uh, A-10 divestment, and he spoke uh, very openly about that. And I just kind of wanted to reiterate what he said and to kind of put some minds at ease and let you know what's going on with that. So the way that, that everybody, it's not a, 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 a rumor or anything that the Air Force wants to divest the A-10. So we believe in the next four or five years, we'll, we'll, we'll have the A-10 here for the next four or five years. I think we're slated to keep the A-10 until FY28, which is October 1st of 2027. That's kind of all we know right now. What's after that for the 442nd? Uh, that's what guys like General Radliff, uh, Congressman Mike Alford, General Healy, who's the Air Force Command uh, uh, Chief of the Air Force Reserves, is fighting for. So all three of us and all of our, our local representatives are kind of fighting really hard to keep the 442nd in a fighter mission down the road. What that is, we don't know, um, and and that's kind of where we are right now. But I just want you folks out there to know that that's what we're fighting for. We're trying to fight to keep uh, the 442nd in a flying fighter mission uh, after the A-10. So F-35s, F-15EXs, F-16s, you name it, uh, it's all on the table, uh, and we're fighting for one of those missions for you guys. Uh, so hopefully that'll, that'll kind of clear up 
what we know. Other than that, we don't know. Uh, you know, the way it works in Congress is they have a five-year plan called the FIDEP, and then they have a thing called the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. So the NDAA is signed by politicians, and they just signed this year's NDAA. So the first A-10 unit is actually divesting the Fort Wayne guys. They're going to, from A-10s to F-16s. So until your congressmen and senators weigh in on what the Air Force wants to do, it's nothing's set in stone. It's just an Air Force plan until the politicians weigh in. That's what's going to happen to the 442nd. So what we're telling everybody is look at the history of the 442nd. It's called the crown jewel of the Air Force Reserves for a reason. Since 9-11, this unit has deployed, I believe, nine times to Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, that's kind of some of the stuff we're going to talk to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rowe and Lieutenant Colonel Marks about their, their history of deployments and some of their great stories and, and DFC awards. So that's all I have for the for the nasty time of this uh, podcast, Shelley. And then we'll uh, we'll press forward and, and start getting some good stories from uh, our guests. Okay, great. And yeah, you know, our main goal of this podcast um, is to be effective communicators and to be transparent. So as critical decisions are made, um, you know, we will keep you informed. And if there are any questions that you have that you feel like we haven't answered or haven't answered clearly. Again, please reach out to us via the Air Force Connect app or our org box. We do see those messages. General Nestor and Chief Barian see those messages. And it is a good um, tool to kind of communicate any concerns so that we can address them at the upcoming podcast as well. All right, and now the fun part of the podcast. I am going to actually turn it over to General Nestor, Lieutenant Colonel Marks, and Lieutenant Colonel Rowe. And so they are going to have a discussion on, I would say all things, but I think we would be here for a very long time, A-10-wise. But just some of their career highlights and um, most recent accomplishments. So over to you, General Nestor. Awesome. Thanks, Shelly. So I asked Kuda and Crack to come in. Uh, man, they're both, Crack's my age, I believe 53, 54 years old, and Kuda's 57? 58. 58. Wow. Uh, one to my right, Crack, has got 5,000, just eclipsed 5,000 hours in the A-10, and Kuda has over 7,000 hours in the A-10. To put that in perspective, I've been flying the A-10 since 1994 with a couple two or three years where I didn't fly when I was in a staff job. And I have like 3,200 hours personally. So these guys have almost double the amount of flying time in the A-10 that I do. And the reason I really wanted to have those these two guys in is because of, I respect both both these guys for, A, the stuff that they've done in their career and then some of the awards they've gotten, the DFCs, uh, the stuff that Carl did in Desert Storm. But, B, really is my respect for them as, as fighter pilots. At 54 and 57, 58 years old, these guys are still motivated to be the top instructors and are really two of the top instructors in the 303rd Fighter Squadron. So from my perspective, man, you guys, I see CUDA. I know in your office you have a photos of uh, some of your relatives that served in the military. Every time you go fly, you, you carry a flag in the cockpit, even on a non-combat sortie, correct? Yep. Uh, tell me a little bit about what, what motivates you to Every time you go fly, you put your combat vest on, you, you take your flag out, and those pictures in your office kind of motivate you to be a, a better fighter pilot, correct? Yeah, 
I don't know when I actually started putting all, I think it's when I got an office and, and uh, started putting all the pictures of, of relatives and hearing all the stories and then realizing that the more I looked into it, you know, I've got a lot. In fact, I have uh, Corporal Gallus uh, Koenig on the wall. He's a corporal in the Civil War uh, on, the, on the Union side. So uh, my mom had done some research. So I decided to put him up there. And it's just kind of neat to see uh, how many uh, relatives I have that have served in the military, all branches, um, over the years. And, and it kind of motivated me on, on one of my, uh, my great uncle before he, uh, he was getting older and lived in Florida. And I went down there and, and actually was kind of inspired by some of these projects that like, I think it's a veterans project or whatever, but you know, I had heard he, he was in the Marines and he had gone on the Island hopping campaign, but I didn't really ever hear the story. So I actually like got out of, you, know, you just have to kind of get over your, your, you know, reluctance to do stuff, but I was like, okay, and I just, I, I brought a, a recorder and said, hey, you know, I heard about some of the, that you had been in, but what did you do? And then, and uh, he, he told me all about, he was, he uh, waded ashore in Kwajalan, and he was a combat engineer, and talking about, you know, building fortifications while taking Japanese sniper fire and all this stuff, and, and it was really cool to, to hear, you know, some stories firsthand, and then, and i like a year later, he had a stroke, and he and uh, I visited him, and he could barely, you know, kind of talk, and and didn't, uh, unfortunately, uh, died fairly shortly thereafter. But so I was, I kind of felt good that I'd, I'd actually talked to him and gotten some of the stories firsthand. So I put up those pictures just as a daily reminder that, you know, there's been a lot of, of uh, really important military history that, that my family's been part of in some way or another. Um, I, you know, honestly, I'd say what motivates me the most is a different picture I, I keep in my office, and it's kind of a, it's an interesting picture. It was in a, a major newspaper. Uh, it's and it's uh, of all all things, it's actually a, a Russian father holding his like about eight year old son who's all he's severely injured, all burned up, and it was from a, it was from a school. It's in South Ossetia. It's a it's a section of 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 uh, Russia that was one of the. Uh, Repub- uh, republics um, and the story though it, it just doesn't matter where it is it hit home to me it was a what happened was a bunch of Chechen rebels it just so happens that they were Chechen it could be any group of of uh, people in the world that think they need to change things through violence they took over a, a large elementary school packed all the students in the gym put uh, giant barrels of explosives f- with, with nails and screws in the gym wired them all together and you know, and then started making demands of, of really what they were, you know, which were of course the kind of demands that weren't going to be met, like all Russian forces immediately leave Chechnya, whatever. And they sent in some special forces. And anyway, at the end of the day, they they set off all the explosives and killed several hundred kids. And and the only way they got out of there was the all the parents in the entire region were surrounding the school, you know, waiting to see what was going to happen with their kids and. So they all ran in there and picked up their kids. So anyway, the picture that reminds me is you don't know when, you're, when your next opportunity is going to be to make a difference. And the bottom line is most people or very few people are willing to serve in the military, but somebody has to be prepared to deal with people that think it's a perfectly legitimate tactic to take over a school and blow up school children, wherever in the world that is. And somebody has to be ready to do that. And that's us. And so I've always looked at it like I'm going to take every minute I, I have and, and practice bomb and bullet that I get to be ready so that if you do have an opportunity, 
and very similar to Afghanistan. We went on many missions, you know, night after night. You never, it was probably not going to be very exciting. It was probably going to be, but you had to be ready because it, uh, as was reminded by, you know, brings it all together, this CAS 3.0, when you're working with those type of teams, if everything goes right, your job is not very tasking. Uh, but that's the point is that you have to be ready when it, when it goes wrong. Uh, and so I never feel like that I have the opportunity. I, I, I owe it to, you know, everybody to, that I don't go out there and, and take a freebie sortie. It has to be preparing to, so that when you, when it is time to go, that you don't, that you don't mess it up. Awesome. That's, that's, that's good. Um, I'm similar, man. My, my grandfather was shot down over Sarajevo and years later I was flying in Bosnia and my uncle was in our unit and he said, you know, your grandfather was shot down right over where you flew today. And then my, my great uncle, he flew P-47s in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And then my dad was a Vietnam F-4 fighter pilot in 37 year career. So similar stuff, man, between our families. Uh, Crack, you're Air Force Academy grad, hockey player, D1 all-star, right? What, what got you in that direction? motivated to go join the Air Force and, and go to the Air Force Academy as, as a young guy? Well, growing up, my dad was in the Navy. He wasn't a pilot. He was a radar operator on a helicopter carrier in Vietnam, So, but he really loved aviation. So we would go to all kinds of air shows and stuff like that, and I just remember sitting on top of an old beater Volkswagen and watching, like, the Blue Angels when they flew F-4s, and then the Thunderbirds were flying T-38s at the time when I was, like, really, really young. So just being around aviation and watching and seeing all that stuff. And obviously you kind of like gravitate certain people, but me for sure you gravitate towards the fighter jets and stuff like that. So that, that was something that one made me want to start, you know, flying and pursue it. And then the Academy thing really came in because I wanted to play division one college hockey and I was pretty sure I wanted to fly. And then when I got recruited to go to the Academy, I was like, Oh, okay, I'll go do this. I didn't really realize what I was, biting off at the time, but it panned out, <laughs> it panned out all right. So, um, I, you know, I had to go to the prep school at the Academy cause I didn't have very good grades, which is standard that, that, for, that which, doesn't surprise me. Which, that's standard for a, <laughs> that's standard for a hockey player from Minnesota and then, uh, go in the next year and, you know, made it through four years kicking and screaming the whole time. But then afterwards, just waiting to go to pilot training and then, I didn't have like anybody necessarily. My grandfather was in World War II. He was in the Army Air Corps, but he was a ground guy once again. But he chased Rommel all over North Africa and stuff like that and had really good stories and things of that type. But I didn't really have any like aviation stories or anything that kind of just gravitated that way as a kid from going all to the air shows and stuff like that. Cool. And both, I know your wife, you met your wife at the academy. She was an officer and, and Kudas, your wife was also an officer in, in the 442nd, right? Both your wives served. Yes, absolutely. Yes, she just uh, a couple of years ago now re- retired from the Air Force Reserve. Yeah, my and my wife was a recruited gymnast at the Air Force Academy. Graduated, did ten years, and then right around when we had our second daughter, we had our second daughter, and then two weeks later, I flew my first mission in Afghanistan in '02. After she, like two weeks after she was born, so that was when my wife kind of was exiting the Air Force. After that, she stayed on and did some civil service stuff in the contracting squadron uh, at both. Pope Air Force Base and Nellis, but she left being on active duty. That's crazy. We're sitting here by the TLFs, and uh, in '03 we got mobilized to go to Iraq uh, for a year, right? And my daughter learned how to walk in the TLF right there, uh, and my wife was pregnant. So we get orders for a year. We leave uh, into March, 
uh, and my wife's on the flight line with my one-year-old daughter, pregnant, and I'm, and I'm like, I'll see you in a year. And my son was uh, born in August. Luckily, I got to come back in July and see him born. But it was very similar. My dad uh, went to Vietnam, and he came back, and he had my he got my mom pregnant uh, right before he left, like like a dumbass, and uh, came back, and he had. Uh, he had a, a, a daughter that was born while he was in Vietnam. So the same thing almost happened to me. So anyway, Crack, let's get to uh, some 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 more stories for from both of you guys. So so Crack's got man, three DFCs. DFC, for those of you that don't know, is Distinguished, distinguished Flying Cross. I don't have any myself, so I'm not, like, jealous or anything. But um, I've had some cool missions myself, but nothing like like Crack. Let's let's talk about, uh, chronologically, your first DFC mission. And then I know Kudas is before, but he, he spoke – yeah, and you didn't get to speak at the reunion because he spoke for he an spoke, hour. Yeah, he was yeah. really very long-winded. Yeah, he's very long-winded because uh, he's got a long neck. Yeah, yeah, so he's long-winded. But um, talk, let's talk about your first one over in uh, Iraqi Freedom. I was in the seventy-fourth fighter squadron at the time, and what happened at there was two fighter squadrons at Pope seventy-fourth and seventy-fifth, and what happened was the seventy-fifth was going to go, and I and two other individuals. Uh, from the 74, so three pilots total, they took three of us. I had been kind of deeply involved with a lot of planning six to eight months before Operation Iraqi Freedom actually even happened. We were planning things with some of the units that we did uh, CAS 3.0 with, and that was kind of what got us, the, at least three of us, myself for sure, into um, I was actually supposed to PCS, and go to the 422, the Test and Evaluation Squadron at Nellis, and they put another fighter weapons school grad, Tito Hetland, another reservist, they put him at Nellis to fill in for me so I could go to Iraq. So I really owe Tito thanks, and he's probably still screaming about that <laughs> to this day. So for those of you that don't, I'm looking at his patch. He cracks a fighter weapons school graduate, which and it's the Air Force equivalent of Top Gun. So really, I'm, I'm sitting next to Maverick uh, here. Better, uh, better looking. Better, yeah, better looking. So we get we got over there. We had pl had a lot of things planned, and we um, were waiting basically a couple weeks, if you will, maybe two to three weeks before kind of things started kicking off. And we had a couple missions that were planned really prior to the official start. But I flew night one of Iraqi Freedom, and we had to have our our secure radios back at the time were not as nearly as good as they are now. And you guys are laughing and smiling. So you couldn't work with these particular guys on the ground if you didn't have secure communications. So my wingman's radios did not work. And then our contract was day or night, we were going to support these guys single ship because the missions were a little bit higher level uh, missions. We call them task force missions now, yeah. but that, that's, what, that's where it really kind of came from, I guess. So I was like, all right, man. I'll meet you out there, and I flew about 600 miles into Iraq single ship, which I had not done before, and the weather was, for whatever reason, the weather in the beginning of Iraqi freedom was miserable every night. So just kind of put the target area off my nose and started trundling in there and knew where my tankers were supposed to be, and then I got there. My wingman still hadn't caught up to me yet. He was literally probably two hours behind, and... uh Supported some guys who had pushed in from the southern border of Iraq, and it was a airfield takedown uh, where they thought there was going to be some um, WMD type stuff at the time, and that and that type of uh, area and that type of 
equipment that they were trying to find. And so we ended up taking down, I believe it was called H3, but we ended up taking down that airfield. And I just did a lot, numerous attacks all about like on my own. There was a couple airplanes, other airplanes in the task force support that showed up, but I didn't meet up with my wingman until I went to the tanker. And then I went to the tanker and I had a, an issue where my jet, uh, I had to do emergency boom refueling, which I've done once. And it was that night. And then we didn't have really many options of places to go uh, for where we were supporting these guys in the area of Iraq that we were in. So we did the emergency refueling. We went back in. My wingman now is with me. We did numerous more attacks for some higher level special operations guys that were on their way in. And that really um, was that night kind of, if I just kind of try to sum it up, it was, it was the night, I think it was that I went in there single ship and then employed single ship waiting for my wingman and then had the emergency issue uh, with the jet on the tanker. I think that was kind of maybe the highlights of, you know, when that people write these things, I mean, the mission, the, the medals are cool and all, but like, like I'm good buddies with that controller still like he may, he has a custom knife company that I have, ordered numerous knives from him that he's built made for me that I like that I carry with in my GC when I deploy. So he's a really good guy. And it's more of a, the, the missions are made better, if you will, by I think the relationships that you form. And we had planned for so much with these guys that we are all on a first name basis with all of these individuals that were going to be doing way harder, you know, things than, than we were doing up in our air conditioned cockpit, you know? Yeah. There was some shooting and stuff going on at us, but there's a lot more obviously shooting going on for them down on the ground. So I think that was the, the, fir- the, that first mission was uh key there. Um, That's this- cool. You, you say uh, relationships. I always say like uh, leadership's about building relationships. Um, and if folks can trust and have trust and cooperation in leaders that, you'll have a better organization. You mentioned H3. You fast forward 10 days when Kuda and I were supposed to go to Turkey for uh, Iraqi freedom, and we didn't get into uh, Turkey. The Turks wouldn't let us in. So we swung around to Kuwait uh, about six, seven days after the thing started. April 1st. Yeah, April 1st. <laughs> Easy uh, to remember that one. And you mentioned H3. General Borgen took a force ship up to Mosul, and uh, there was no tankers that showed up. So these guys, uh, it was BB and, and uh, yeah. some other guys, they didn't have fuel to get back to Kuwait. They went so to H1, right? They went to, I thought it was H3. Well, I think it was H1. It's, or, it's way out west. Well, yeah, so they went to H1. Anyways, it, and like an area that you cleared out early in the war, they actually landed there and got refueled by some special forces guys with fuel bladders uh, run around on, on four-wheelers. So it was a really cool story of, uh, <clears throat> of stuff that 442nd did. So probably thanks to the job that you did the first night and get some of those. Uh, yeah, it's funny because the squadron commander of the 75th, Bino Turner, who is a great guy, and but if we were going to have to divert into a certain area where we weren't supposed to be, he's like, hey, just get down there, turn off your squawk, get some gas, and turn your squawk back on once you get inside Iraq. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah, Bino Squadron replaced us up in uh, right, uh, right. Talil. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, my first, my first sortie in Iraq across the border with uh, Sky Rags, and um, day one uh, it was when KC got hit. Uh, the guard guy from Michigan got shot down, and the other Wolf, guy got his Wolf engine Man. blown up uh, and had to land at Talil. So all three of these guys get hit within, and my radio's going crazy on the, the first day I flew in combat in Iraq, and I was like, uh, this is uh, actually real. 
Chalk Seawold got shut down. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they right. had another guy maybe get. Yeah, Wolfman had a lot of battle damage. Damage. Made it back. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we'll get back to you, crack. So over to Cuda. So Cuda, a man in nineteen ninety ninety or ninety one for Desert Storm. Well, the we, we deployed in August of ninety, and then the, the war started in uh, early ninety one. So I'm a senior in college, watching uh, Desert Storm on TV. Uh, we talked a little bit yesterday about. Uh, I always thought that your twenty three tanks in today's story was on the highway of death, but you said no. That was the day after that. I was interviewing with Wolf Blitzer from CNN that day. Tell me, this, tell me the story about both the highway of death and your twenty three tank story. Uh, sure. So, yeah, I'm not sure where they got kind of mixed up, but uh, the Highway of Death was, uh, uh, it's, there's, there's some pretty, any book you get on Desert Storm usually has a couple pages on it, some pretty shocking uh, photos for most people to look at. Um, and so what that was, and again, I, I was not involved other than I was there. I certainly saw the aftermath uh, like a couple days after it was over, and I saw the area where it was. We saw it, all, anybody who flew in Kuwait saw it because it was a very large uh, and of course, in Southern Watch, you know, we were there many times, and everybody has seen those really large multi-lane highways that are running from Kuwait City to the border of of Iraq. And uh, so we had our ROE was in Desert Storm was uh, you know was was awesome. It was pretty much go to this area, find military targets, and and destroy them, and then tell us what you know what you hit. But you know, they were also trusting us a lot to, like, look at stuff and, and make a judgment. So most of us had, we had seen this this large highway, and there was traffic on it, and but it, was, it just looked like civilian traffic, and we're like, well, we're not going to strike that. Well, so uh, the three missions that I they lumped together and I got my DFC for were, were on the 25th of, of February, and then on the 26th, well, we had noticed during those missions as well that there, there was suddenly, there was, I mean, it looked like the entire Kuwaiti population was on that highway. Well, at the time, we didn't know. Um, we were striking targets on both sides of the highway, like revetted tanks and stuff like that, but not on the highway itself. It was literally like this giant traffic jam. And I don't know the truth. There's a lot of things in war you find even after all these years that you don't really know what the true story is or how it all happened. But at some point, Intel had made the determination and realized or decided that however they make those decisions, that th- these were not in any way civilians this was once they had realized that the, the war was lost and whether they did it on their own or whether they got orders from their iraqi commanders but every iraqi soldier in kuwait city grabbed whatever vehicles they could get which mostly were civilian vehicles it was mostly you know uh, chevy caprices white chevy caprices that's the most popular vehicle in the middle east uh, at the time and pickup trucks there were some armored personnel carriers there were a few tanks mixed in but they were they had just literally looted everything they could carry uh, in, because I guess that's, you know, that was part of their game plan, I guess, as well. If we can't take it over, we're going to loot and leave. And they just shoved everything they could possibly fit from from the uh, people who had, they'd been occupying their homes, got in cars, and were driving north to try to get across the border. And at some point, they they uh, decided to go ahead and stop this uh, this exodus uh, and as soon as the they did that, well, it was immediate, uh, I mean, just absolute uh, chaos and carnage. As soon as the cluster weapons started to fall, and then as, as they would drop on the first group of vehicles, well, the vehicles behind would tr- try to drive around. So they immediately started driving around these 
burnt out vehicles or vehicles on fire into the into the uh, desert on both sides of the highway, and the, that sand over there is very very uh, uh, difficult to drive on. It's very silty and soft, and so they would immediately bog down. And now and so what it ended up being was like a three mile long by mile wide, where you literally you couldn't miss. You were just rolling in, pickling on on this giant area of of massed vehicles. In fact, uh, Jim McCauley, the previous uh, ops group commander, did employ on that, and he said it was it was just so strange. You know, you didn't even pick a target. You just rolled in and just and pickled all your ordnance on that. And every flight into Kuwait, that entire several hour period, did that. Um, so that was what the Highway of Death was and it literally I mean that's the perfect name for it because it was just uh, that's what it, that's what it was and and looking at it from the air it would literally just look like a, a three mile by one mile area of burnt out vehicles that were still still smoldering when we went uh, the ceasefire was on the 28th of February so it was only like two days prior to the cease, ceasefire that's when they decided that you know they were all trying to get out so uh, my my group of three missions I got the DFC were on the 25th of February it started with uh, typical day when you were on alert so during the ground war they had alert cast airplanes there were two of us on alert and you would go out pre-dawn and get your jets uh what we called you know hot cocked for the the day you'd start up the yep. start everything up so that when you if you did have to launch you could just start it and go you didn't have to sit there and align all your systems and everything most of the time you would not launch in fact i think up to that point nobody had launched on an alert you would you would get the jets ready, you'd go on status, and then all day you'd sit around and wait for them. And then usually by the end of the day, if you hadn't been used, then they would just go ahead and launch you on a normal mission. So we didn't, we weren't on like a, it wasn't like we were expecting to go. And I didn't even strap in to the, to the cockpit. I just was sitting there and we started up the INS and everything, and then we called in for words like we do all the time here. And instead of the normal, no words, you know, come on in, you would leave your G-suit hanging on the jet and everything in case you had to scramble. But, but, they were like, yep, call ready for words. And I was, I just remember thinking, oh, uh, uh, uh-oh, you know, and I'm trying to write down grids that they're passing while I'm getting and telling the crew chief, I got to get strapped in because we're, we're launching. And we launched. And I just learned actually very recently, again, from war, you just never know what, it's very rare to find the true picture. But I just ended up finding out from somebody I knew in the 74th from years back that's now a sim instructor, uh, I think at Moody. Anyway, yeah. he was telling you guys that they're the ones that found the, the convoy that had gone on the move right at dawn, but they were out of fuel, and so they, they came back and passed that to Bookshelf, who was the – that was it was a big C-130 that passed all the information from your, your back and forth to guys, and that's who we got the information from on our way in. Uh, so we – we got up there right at dawn and found the first tank convoy that had gone on the move, uh, which up until that point, they were all stationary. So they'd gone on the move um, and pulled into the sand. The sand was like very cold that time of the morning, and the tanks were red hot, and, and we just unloaded all of our Mavericks immediately and then shot several more with the gun. And it was already like probably going to be the best mission of, of you know my entire Desert Storm. And you look back, and there's like eight pillars of smoke rising from this burning tanks were like this so all the mavericks were ir uh infrared we, uh we had at that for that mission we had all ir which worked out perfect for that yeah d models, d models. <clears throat> so then we went back to the home station and thinking okay we're we're done for the day and they're like as soon as we got back like we have more targets get get the jets turned and, and 
So it, talk to me, talk to me a little bit about that. Our maintenance guys are are kind of getting back into this ICT world, integrated combat turn. So t- tell these guys, the listeners, what you what your integrated combat turn. You you told me once it was kind of like ordering at McDonald's, right? Like a drive-through. Well, yeah, I mean it, that's what we we call it. You know, it was like have it your way at uh, at Burger King. You would pull into the to the spot and uh, they would climb up. Uh, one of the chiefs would, would uh, wipe off your windshield for you and say, "Hey, what do you what do you want?" And you we'd say, "We want you know." Two IR, two, two EO Mavericks, or four Kansas CBU, or no free fall, whatever, whatever you wanted to do, uh, and we had that set up at the forward operating base, which was up at uh, King Khalid Military City, which is only about forty miles south of the border. That was excellent because you could you could uh, go to a really low bingo before you went and got. So got how, how long time wise did it take you to turn? So it would be like 20 minutes, 20 minutes tops. Fuel. In fact, I remember it was, you know, it was tough to, to be able to use a piddle pack. You had to like work it in there because they were, I mean, they were on it. They were, they were, uh, we don't need go to start talking. I don't need to start talking about stuff yeah, like yeah. that. In the no, cockpit. that's true. Yeah. But, uh, so we went, uh, so yeah, we got back and we're like, okay, well that was a pretty, pretty exciting day. You know, I think we got to lunch and like, okay, you need to turn right now and go back. So, uh, we went, went back up. The second mission was, uh, the most exciting of all of all three of them because it was up near Kuwait City, and by that time the oil fires had been set by the uh, Iraqis on their retreat, and so you have this uh, just the overcast is just black because of these burning fires, and it was also the weather surprisingly at that time that was kind of about a four to six thousand kind of rainy, cloudy uh, overcast, which was pretty unusual. But it just so happened during the ground war, that was pretty normal for that. So we came in underneath these clouds, and there's fires burning. And it was just very apocalyptic looking already before we even started shooting anything. And we worked with a Marine uh, airfac. They were in uh, F-18s, uh, two-seat F-18s they flew as the, as the airfacs, and they would come out of these clouds. I just remember them coming out of the clouds practically vertically, and, and, uh, and they would shoot a couple rockets to point out the targets and then go back into the clouds. So, so that's, and they put us onto some, again, a bunch of lined up or vetted uh, armor south of Kuwait City that the Marines were concerned with, obviously, as they were advancing from the south. And, and we cleaned off the jets again, uh, emptied them all out. And again, you know, eight pillars of, of smoke from all these burning vehicles. Uh, took a lot of AAA in that area just because uh, we were lower and we were right in the, there was just flak everywhere. And so we kind of, that was a memorable mission for for all those reasons, but also because we were really having to. That's what the shooter cover is all about. We were definitely keeping each other honest on because uh, we were definitely both pretty aggressive. Uh, me and Fish Tomlinson, who I was yep. flying with that whole day, and so it it was interesting how you know at at some point both of us took turns being the guy. That, hey man, I think we probably ought to we ought to move from here. Or, Getting or, too low, too slow. Yeah, yeah. Or exactly, kind yeah. of keeping each other honest. So after that, we went to the the FOL, which was only 40 miles away. We landed there, and we, we, we turned. After your second sortie. After the second sortie. So how long and how long did you sit in that, that jet that it was over. Uh, it was over like 12 hours in the, in the seat. By in the, time the seat. We, were, we were did it. But so we, got, we yeah. got to the, to the FOL and landed, and we're thinking, okay, we're going to be, you know, we're definitely going to just turn and, and, and be done. Um, they said, hey, you know, we got another target for you. Are you are you guys game for another sortie? So of course we we said yes. Did you, so, have, did you have any food? Did you? Uh, I, you know I don't remember. You I couldn't order a Whopper at Burger King with your no, CBU. I I don't I don't remember that. I we probably didn't. But you know how it gets. You don't even worry about any kind of 
typically when you get into all that yeah. stuff, you're adrenaline, right? You know, yeah, adrenaline's a wonderful thing. Uh, and you know, I think you spend the rest of your whole career trying to get those those adrenaline back to those levels. Which there were certainly missions later in the career that you kind of remember the fact that all the because you know how to, you know you're sitting in the seat and you're uncomfortable and you're thirsty and you're, you got to go to the bathroom whatever and then suddenly you get the call that there's a troops in contact and then you don't even remember any any of that until four hours later you're like oh man I am really tired and really hungry and etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyway so we did the third mission again up near uh, Kuwait City hit more targets I mean just the fact that we we found that much much armor uh, was was just kind of lucky and then we made the most of it is how I like to put it you know you have to be put in those circumstances just by luck that we got that many good targets but then we didn't we didn't leave any sitting we uh we took made the most of it there's no such thing luck is when preparation meets opportunity see there you go all right that's my Perfect. that's my motto that's, and, and that's absolutely true because yeah. if you just because you yeah you have to be a little you know fortunate to get in to be get into that situation and find the good targets but then you got to be ready to go and, and do, make the most of it so we did that came back and the, the way that the interviews happened was i remember coming back from the, the last mission um and they had asked uh you know what's your your segums code that was yep. how many how much gas and munitions and everything and every Five. mission that day had been uh it was uh one ones it was what status effective gas one one two uh, zero 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 ammo munitions and the last was always zero zero yeah. and they were like zero zero you guys the third mission you're you're zero zero what you know what do you been, what did you hit out there and I, I just added up all the because we used to write everything on the grease grease pencil on the canopy and I had been writing all the BDA you know slash marks and I said we got thirty three tanks twenty three <laughs> of which are you know confirmed K kills on fire and they were like you know I remember the, it was a squadron commander got up, answered he was up there and he he picked up and he said say that again. On the you know when we were calling in and uh, uh, got on the radio, but so they had they called the PA and and because at the time it was a press pool, so uh, they essentially the press didn't get to embed or they didn't get to pick stories. They got kind of fed what what they wanted to what we wanted to tell them, and so they called over to the PA and said, "Hey, we got some guys coming back that shot a bunch of tanks. Would you be interested in doing interviews?" And then that's how CNN was in the building the next day with all these names at the time you know headline news and that kind of thing was like brand well, new that blitzer, whole, yeah, he was a star Wolf blitzer and carl rochelle and so fish and i were up there and and luckily for for everybody like fish is a he's a he's a much better interviewer i was kind of a you know just sat there telling the facts and not very animated and he was just telling long, about long-winded probably and and then he was talking about how you know he was describing the explosions and how everything was blowing up and all this other stuff and and so he was a much better interview than us, but that's how that all happened. So you mentioned some AAA. I know a guy that used to be in our our, our unit in the four forty second just retired. Sweetness was yeah. he shot down right? He was a POW. Was he shot down right around the twenty fifth or before that? I you know I and Storeman too. Was, I, the Storeman was in okay, your well, squadron, well, right? Yeah, that was the that was the other most memorable mission by far. Is I did like a six hour CSAR for for Storeman. I was Sandy too. Yeah, both those guys were um, POWs. Yes, yeah. they were POWs together. Uh, that was all during the during the, the ground war portion. So it was all in those, those few days right there because that's when we were pressing in. But I, I'm uh, gonna, I'll try to get Sweetness to do a podcast with us to tell a story. It's, he's got a great story. Oh, yeah. That. yeah. And, in fact, it's always amazing how I, I years later heard Storeman talk about his experiences that I had I mean, been in the squadron with him and met him numerous times after that, but had never like heard all the stories about what they went through. I mean, they were in the prison they were in where it was bombed by uh, F-117s while they were in the prison. They could hear the bombs coming down through the through the build, you know, through the floors that, yeah. and all that. Kind of, I mean, just my son goes to get, uh, Gonzaga 
in Spokane, and I stopped by his bar, and he was not working or anything, but uh, tons of 810 memorabilia all in the bar. It's pretty cool. Yeah, he's he's been he's given a lot of speeches at the at the Sears School uh, with obviously first hand experience. So cool. Well, I'll get back to you on some other Desert Storm stuff. So crack uh, one DFC down, second to go. Tell me about your <laughs> second DFC. Uh, was it Afghanistan or Iraqi Freedom again? Uh, Iraqi Freedom. Um, I don't remember that it was March or April. Uh, for as far as the month go, I had just gotten back from like. I think I probably had gotten back from like a five or seven hour sortie. So we didn't have a lot of guys that were qualified to sit CSAR alert. So CSAR is um, combat search, combat search and rescue. Combat so search and rescue. I was sitting co- alert as Sandy one and my wingman, who was my combat pair, Thud Del Vecchio, who flew with me on all the task force missions. He had not ever, he was not a Sandy two, but he was sitting alert with me to fly Sandy two. So we're, I am literally in my G suit. My feet are flat on the floor. I'm laying on a cot and I like just have my harness and vest. Like I'm kind of laying on it as a pillow and I am completely out cold. I am like sawn logs. I'm probably snoring as loud as can be. And I remember it's nice and dark. It's nighttime. The, the life support area where all the, the, um, Flight equipment guys were working. It was like super black and the air conditioning was great. And I'm not, I'm unconscious sleeping. And this, our life support tech comes over and he's like, sir, sir. And he's like tugging on my flights. He's like, you're getting, the, you're getting launched. And I'm like, what? I got, I'm like, yeah, I'm like half, still half asleep. I'm like, are you serious? Cause we had just, we had literally just landed. The pilot rest thing was kind of not really happening that well. <laughs> and uh, so he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get up, we grab our stuff. Our jets were all ready to go. Just like we talked, like Carl had talked about earlier, hop up in there. And the Intel guy, you know, just like you always train your like scenarios and training the guy, Intel guy comes up the ladder and he hands me a map and the coordinates. And normally when you're Sandy one and you're leading the CSAR, you don't necessarily know where this, these these isolated personnel are like you, if you is it a pilot find, you yeah them. you got to find them so you got to find out their condition you got to find their location and all the threats and that's normally the the things that are pretty rough well we kind of knew the threats because it was bag it was this was literally in downtown Baghdad and we had the location and it was like a spot on location which is unheard of having that at launch time but the reason that we had it was because it was a bunch of Marines that they were moving to a big high, a highway with all the four clover leaves um, and the bridges. And they were going to, it was a casualty collection point. So they were bringing all these Marines that were injured that needed immediate evac. The problem is that we're in the A-10 and we're in Al Jabber in Kuwait. And we got to go all the way to Baghdad, which is two and a half hours to get up there yeah. to do this combat search and rescue. And on the way up there, it was probably when I'm previously when we were talking about how bad the weather was. Well, this was like the worst. It's probably some of the worst weather I've flown in. Maybe some of the worst weather I've flown in this day. It was sandstormy, horrible, like Talil, which was just north of Al Jaber, but Talil was in Iraq. I'd call it, you know, what a south centralish Iraq, if you will. But yeah. like they had like half a mile viz, like it was bad, and I looking at the gas and looking at talking to, to Thud as my wingman. And I'm like, hey, man, you got to get on the radio. 
you got to get us tankers to start pushing up there. I'm going to let everybody, and you would love to think that everybody understands the call sign Sandy one on the radio, but nobody understands what that means. And being able to fly with the Sandy one call sign in combat as a combat search and rescue dude is pretty awesome because of the legendary a one guys flying the sky Raiders back in Vietnam and, and the, 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 uh, community and the environment and all the the groundwork that those guys had laid down like you wanted to stand up to that right you wanted to do a good job and you're flying with that call sign you're like this is for real right so we're going up there we're in the weather like you know there was numerous missions where we'd turn our lights off take the runway and take off and then we'd just be in an altitude block and thuds basically just following me on an air-to-air attack. And, like, when all the young guys are all upset that their data link doesn't work, I'm this like, dude, pre, we went, pre-saddle, yeah, like, pre-data we went link. 600 miles in Iraq as two of us, and all we had was attack, air-to-air attack, and that was it. Like, mm-hmm. we were just going, you know. So we're on our way up there, and because of how bad the weather was, it was really, really affecting what's the number one lesson learned in combat search and rescue? Com communications is always terrible. Well, literally, of all all the frequencies allotted to the entire, all the allies and the NATO partners and all the U.S. dudes flying in Iraq, I literally can find one frequency that I can get me and my wingman, the King, which was the uh, C-130, the rescue C-130, and then the Jolly, the helicopter, that I can get all of us on one frequency finally get these guys on the radio. And because of the fact that nobody is really paying attention to what we're doing with a combat search and rescue, there's like guys in the big stack over, over Baghdad waiting to try to do close air support, which isn't going to happen because it's like a 20 foot visibility down there. They're like, if you don't get off this frequency, there's going to be other people on the ground. And I, I got to, it was my highlight of all my radio calls of my entire career. I was like, this is Sandy one. I have King Zero One and Jolly Two on the frequency. The frequency is mine. Get off. <laughs> Most glorious radio call ever in my career. <laughs> and everybody was quiet after that. And I was like, thank you. So we got up there. The helos picked up the guys. And it's really interesting because we are up in the weather. We, you can see tracers and stuff co- happening, but like nobody's really shooting at us, right? But they're there's definitely more of a threat to the helicopters, the rescue helicopters and the, obviously the 130. So the rescue helicopters pick up these guys, but as we were going up there, I'm not going to make it in time because of the distance. And so Footmillen uh, was an active duty guy at the time. He was also a fighter weapons school instructor when I was a student there. And then Sumo Brown was Foot's wingman and Sumo was a guard guy at Idaho. Idaho, yeah. And they hear bits and pieces of stuff on the, like, kind of that lane, that lane, the central lane of Iraq, the frequencies that everybody's using in the central lane versus the eastern or the western. And foot comes up on our on my inner flight and he's like, Hey, do you need some you need help? And I'm like, absolutely. I go, dude, you need to I'm so I give him information and give him a handoff and he helps with the initial pickup. And then we base without without foot, those guys would not have had any possible even possibility even though the weather was bad but they would have had no possibility of any air cover or rescue support or uh you know uh escorting those guys escorting the helicopters in in obviously in bad guy land without foot and sumo that they wouldn't have had any cover so kudos to those guys because they got so short on gas 
that they literally had to land at Talil in that basically mile-ish yeah, yeah. visibility. Yeah, they didn't have approaches in there either. No, no. And, they, and they just had to make it happen because they were, they were out of gas and out of ideas. Um, and we did a hand. I handed it off to them, and then as we were going from Talil, or sorry, from Baghdad, from downtown Baghdad, and the thing about Baghdad was – the all the overpasses and the and the bridges and stuff that's where KC got shot. Yep. So they were like kind of using they would hide underneath them. Underneath like if them. you ever listen to Donk Strasberger and uh, Billy Bob Thornton, they have done numerous podcasts because they both got silver stars. But they were like bouncing bullets up underneath the bridges of some of the overpasses to try to to try to hit the enemy that was shooting and stuff. So they pick up these guys, thirteen plus guys. Some of them are like legitimately getting surgery kind of as this whole thing is happening is the story that we were kind of told, but we pick them up as they're going back to Al Kut, which initially was like in a Republican guard kind of stronghold, but it had been bombed pretty good. So we did a transload from the helicopters, all the, all of the um, patients, if you will, all the guys that were got rescued, they transloaded them onto the C-130 and then we took the C-130 back further south as much as we could. And it was the thing about it that was painful is that it was the almost like the bookkeeping or like the Sandy 2 job of knowing where all your assets are. Where's our tanker? Where's our gas? How much time do we have? What's the frequency that we're on? What's the threat update? What's the update on the on the guys on the ground, all their, their situation as far as health or injuries are concerned, how can we pass as much of this back to the guys who are going to pick them up and do some of the medical procedures to help them survive? And everybody lived, which is a, a great part of the story. But we just kind of d- did a lot of that and not necessarily as much killing stuff with an A-10, if you will. Um, the co- other cool thing about it was the um, – the rescue, the helicopter guys, and I'm sure the the guys in the um, one th- the HC-130 as well, they won rescue of the year for that rescue. Awesome. So that was kind of that's a pretty neat thing. And I've actually met with some of the helicopter dudes, and they're 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 all reservists too. So their plaque is hanging in the bar at Cocoa Beach in the in the fellow reserve squadron in the HH-60 squadron there. So it's kind of neat to see those guys get recognition for flying in some absolutely horrible conditions and, and literally saving all of those guys' lives with getting there, having enough gas to get them someplace safe, having enough, uh, the PJs and the, and the, and the back end folks on the HC-130 to help them get the medical attention that they needed. And that, and the, the even funny, kind of more funny thing is, like I said, my wingman was not a he wasn't a Sandy two. He wasn't a qualified Sandy two. So we got back to Al Jabber and I wrote a grade sheet and I just said, <laughs> flew Sandy two in combat, recommend Sandy two qualified. And I gave him like a four on the grade sheet. Like you never give anybody a four, right? So yeah. I'm like, yeah, give him a four. He did good. That's awesome. That's an awesome story. I, I'll get back to you on your third DFC. Well, and and uh, I put one in on that as well as far as the CSAR when, when uh, uh, Fish and I did the CSAR for Storeman. Uh, the funny story there is, or interesting, I guess it, some things just don't change because that was, I mean, that was in, in 91. The, the Sandy guys, all the Sandy qualified guys, which was a big deal, you, you yeah. know, at, at that time to go through the Sandy upgrade. Everybody wanted to be a, a Sandy, most experienced guys. Well, they got tired of sitting alert the whole, they weren't like, so they kind of, they got got together and said, we, do, we think that, uh, you know, we don't want to sit alert for the whole 
because luckily there weren't a lot of people getting shot down, obviously. So, so they were they wanted to get in on on, some on all the targets to check out other guys as Sandy, so we could sit alert. So my entire Sandy checkout uh, <laughs> and me and Fishes was a, like a thirty minute discussion in the in the back in the building room, and then they go, okay, you're, you're Sandy qualified. You're you're flying up to the to the FOL tomorrow. You're on you're starting Sandy alert, and then <laughs> a day after that we were launching on a on a CSAR. On Stormans. Uh, on Stormans Caesar, and it was the same thing, you know, the stuff I still remember of the klaxon goes off, and we're like, here, here we go, and then the, an 06 climbed up the ladder and handed me the, the and it was the, you know, the, the information, and he's like, good luck, son, and shook my hand, and I'm like, because I'm like, you know, I'm 26, I'm the Sandy 2, and, we, and then we open up the stuff, and it's, and it's One of your his guys. isoprep, and it's Storman, he's my flight commander, and I'm like. That's crazy. And so Fish and I are like, you know, let's, let's go get him. I mean, we were. It's always a good, we the out, good so. luck thing, like because the first night that we launched for Operation Iraqi Freedom, it was they were all night sorties for us, and as you're taxiing out, like literally, I don't know if you guys ever had this, but the the priest is doing the water <laughs> no, on the I airplane, and I'm like, no, I'm like, no. I'm like that. Uh, does this guy know something that <laughs> I do not know? Because yeah. I'm currently not Catholic, but I can be in 30 seconds if, if needed. I, 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 I don't remember that. I want to make no sure way. everybody understands. That's you know? hilarious, yeah, man. I'm like, I'm like, oh, boy. There's some, like, there's some sorties that I still, like, lose sleep over, right? Like, I remember I was uh, escorting these guys, a convoy escort in Afghanistan. And uh, my job was to look for IEDs out in front of them, people loading IEDs. We're 30 minutes into it. <clears throat> IED goes off. And... So the next day, I'm standing at uh, Bagram in the in the procession line of a funeral of the guys. I was overwatched, watching their caskets go by mm. me. And I'm like, damn, man, like, like, just hit me. Like, could I have done something sure. better to, to not have this happen, you know? Or uh, a sortie where I had a guy launching RPGs at these Brits and rolled in and strafed 300 rounds. He's in the corner of this building with no uh, palat or what's it called, a no, no, no roof on it. Kalat. Kalat. I put three hundred rounds right into the guy, and he runs out of the building. None of them hit him, and, and he gets on a magic, motorcycle. Magic Nikes. Yeah, and he starts. And and I, I mean, still to this day, both those sorties. Any sorties, Kuda, that you like, lose sleep over from from back in the day. You know, I mean, honestly, the, the ones that I I tend to think back and go, what what could I have done different? Are the ones where. Uh, either we in Afghanistan, you guys, you guys know how it was. It was almost to be able. You, you knew the guys were bad guys. You've been watching them do bad things, and then you had to convince the powers that be that you could engage them. And there was a, a couple of times that you know I was unable to to, to convince them. And you know, I think back, you know, if there's something I could have said differently or something. And then also on on like you said, a target where you know that, that we we learned on the go as you certainly learn all kind of techniques like. Uh, parroting clearances and stuff like that. There were, there were passes where you knew you were only going to get one chance, and then for some reason you didn't get clearance, and then you couldn't. You know. So uh, to me, I guess I, I'd sum it up with, at least from the Afghan war for sure, it was the ones that got away, that the ones I think back and go, oh, what could I have done different? Same. You know, so, um, or if you miss. Same. Well, yeah, absolutely. If you, like, um, if just, like if you have a laser on the target in the – and a laser rocket goes astray or goes stupid or the LGB or for whatever reason, it just misses well, and you're like, I don't get the effects that I want. And, yeah. and as you probably well know, but, uh, you know, I know I, I drove weapons officers crazy on all of my Afghan trips because they always come back and go, 
okay, Carl, let's uh, let's have a discussion about your, you know, I mean, I can remember one where it was a, it was actually his, his I can remember his his call sign was a little red Corvette. It was some, it was the, he was the Taliban leader in the in the one place that they were really trying to get, and he went and crawled under a culvert, and and to get him, I had to I had to shoot inside a culvert over a stream, and let's just say, you know, I got pretty close and, and low. And so it was always like, you know, <laughs> Hey, uh, okay, good job. You hit the target. Don't do that again. Yeah. And, and unfortunately I, I got that talking to several times, but it was exactly what crack said is that you were in situations you're like, I really don't want to miss. No. And, and then, as we know with the A 10, there's lots of different ways to do it, but the best way is to get, uh, when low and close enough that you're not going to miss. And I'd never wanted to come back from a story and go, yeah, we had, our, you know, I, I, I tracked this guy for, two hours and we've got our window to shoot him and I missed. So I was just like, so that, that tended to influence my tactics that I would use. And so I had a few discussions with like the whites of their eyes. (laughs) Part of being a squadron commander was, I make no apologies for that. Every time, every time we employed, uh, you had to go watch the film with the wing commander the next day. You were graded. uh, So the wing commander, not only did I have to go see him about film, I'd have to go see him about Tango wearing the wrong color underwear or socks at the gym, <laughs> you know. So uh, anyway, <laughs> I go in, and he's watching my film from the day before, a big deal, and uh, general big deal. And he looks at me, and he goes, Nasty, when you get a nine line, you don't freaking miss. And I was like, <laughs> yes, sir. And, and that, that, Good for him. Yeah, that's what he said. So crack, go, go, real quick, we're not running out of time, but we want to keep you the have listeners. To have us back yeah. another one. Yeah, lots of stories. So in Afghanistan, I think the, the precursor to your Kentucky Guard deal was you and Jimmy hit guys on a moped, right? And they went into a field and you uh, strafed yes, them. There was, well, we, we took off and we got – it was the standard Afghanistan roving motorcycle gang, right? Yeah. You, you had a mission that you planned. You, and well, literally, that, that was all on the and literally right. our And literally sandwich. as we took the runway to take off and we were running up our engines and we were just about to release brakes, they're like, hey, you're – your uh, JTAR has been canceled, and you're going to go here instead. And I wrote it down, and I released brakes and took off. And we went very like very close to Bagram Air Base there, like 50 miles south, to a Troops in Contact. Because remember when Troops in Contact used to be a they situation? Had, they had various levels. It, well, of, it used to be uh, a situation, right. and we evolved it, maybe not smartly, into a targeting category. That's right. because it, JTACs are very clever, and when, it, when, smart. when you try to make it difficult to kill the bad guys, they so will come up with a way to do it. We yeah. got we got diverted to a troops in contact, which was some guys on the ground. But when we showed, obviously, but when we showed up, there were already two Apaches there, and it was kind of, I guess, over for the for the most part, if you will. Then we got pushed to um, what you were talking about: the IED emplacers, two guys on the moto on the motorcycle, tracked them, tracked them, tracked them, actually used one of the balloons to help us get kind of correlated to, because they were, they were maneuvering through an area where there were multiple, multiple civilians and, and places that people live and, and try to ha- have a, their daily life. We waited, we targeted him, the, the two of them, as they left the town, we had clearance to employ. And then we used the targeting pod, which was, kind of newer, if you will, a little bit for all of us to kind of, uh, my wingman was Brigadier General Retired Jim Mackey and fellow Air Force Academy hockey player, by the way. Hockey players make good fighter pilots. 
um, he was IDing the target and marking the target with his targeting pod, and I have obviously something in the heads-up display which kind of cues my eyeballs to where he's looking. Strafed the motorcycle while it was moving. It kind of just got... I shot and some of the most of the bullets kind of hit right next to the guy, but they blew up the motorcycle and they crashed and then they started crawling. I think one guy was maybe okay as far as his condition and another guy I think was maybe hurt a little bit worse, but they crawled into the middle of a field. But so when they're moving, you could see them. Yeah. But as soon as they stopped moving, it was like there was not like it was just looked like a field, like they blended in completely. But Jimmy Mac still had his targeting pod marking them. And I came back around and we, we shot him or I shot him again. The interesting thing about that is we had the one a guy survived. Right. And we had a, a guy in the squadron, Dr. Bombay, Dr. Bombay, who at the chow hall at Bagram runs into a guy that he went to medical school with. And so this guy goes, Hey, Dr. Bombay, I think you guys shot some guys off of a motorcycle today. And Dr. Is like, yeah, it was a uh, Jimmy Mac or a crack and Jimmy Mac and da 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 da. And they, he's like, hey, well, they brought the one guy that lived to the hospital on base at Bagram. So like 50 yards away from where we were all living in our our, our B huts, is this guy that I had just strafed. That one guy was dead, and this guy lived but had some pretty bad injuries. But this guy's like, hey, do you want to come over and see him? And I go, no, I do not want to come over and see him. So after they let him go, I went over there and I got to see this guy's like CT scan and all of the x-rays and stuff. And he was just, he was riddled, riddled with metal. And the, the doctor was like, Hey, normally we, we, we get these guys, we patch them up, we let them go. And normally the villagers where they were implanting IEDs all over the paths that were going to create havoc for the, the, the people's children. He's like, normally the Afghanis just, they take care of, the problem on their own. He goes, but this guy's not going to live here probably. So they both, you know, I'd like to, I thought, uh, sadly, I'd like to think that the guy died, but he deserved it. I thought Dr. Bombay went and saw him. Dr. Bombay did go and see him. And and the guy was, he spit at him and they had him all shackled up to the, uh, to the hospital bed when Dr. Bombay went to see him. Because I was like, but doc, man, what, why did you go over there? He goes, I, I, I needed to look the enemy in the eyes. And I was like, oh my God. So anyway, that's it. That was a good story. So, you get off the moped, guys, and you get retasked down to the so the Kentucky we get guys. retasked to the original tick. Well, we get retasked to our original tasking, which was going to be escort a convoy out of a fob. We check in on the radio, and the guy goes, "There's no convoy." And we finally get a hold of a JTAC who's at that fob, and he goes, "Oh, those guys are having vehicle troubles. Can you just do a show of force, like check out their route, and then you know make sure it's okay and and see." the best that you can see to help them feel safe if they're going to leave the confines of the, of the forward operating base and drive on Afghani roads, which I think would make anybody quite frankly petrified. Um, and so we did that. And then the JTAC, it was purely an act of God. Uh, the JTAC comes on the radio and says, Oh, I'm getting some other traffic on another radio frequency that one of our convoys has taken fire. Can you guys check it out? Sure. Gives us the coordinates. We're literally seven and a half miles away. So we're like, whoop. I mean, we're there in a minute. And that was where chaos completely started to ensue there. And a lot of the stuff from that mission I knew was going on to the best of my ability from talking to them on the radio. But I've learned a lot 
after the mission by being really, really good friends with some of the Kentucky Army uh, National Guard guys that to this day are good, <clears throat> are good buddies. So we check in, and there are three vehicles that are in kind of a curvy pass with high terrain kind of on each side, really high terrain on their left side. And then around this corner, so they're like out of sight of each other now, is about like 25 vehicles. So we don't really know. There's one guy on the radio, and we don't really know who we're talking to. We think that we're talking to the three, because one of them you could see in the targeting pod, and you could kind of see with your eyeballs looking out the canopy, had a bunch of like gas, oil, hydraulic fluid that was pouring out and making a big puddle. Like You could see the puddle really well in the targeting pod that these are it's disabled. It's not that vehicle. It was an MRAP. It's not going anywhere. And the person that we're talking to is really, really calm on the radio. Like, Hey, hog five, one, this is FedEx zero six. Hey, how, you know, we got some guys here and I'm going, man, this guy seems really calm for like this, where they're at and Hey, we're getting shot at and come to find out the individual we're talking to is the like convoy commander, but he's in the vehicles, the 20 vehicles that basically took off when they got stopped in basically converging fields of fire. It was an ambush area from the enemy. They had guys up high on their left-hand side and they had guys over here. I never knew there were guys on their right. I knew there were guys on their left from the radio calls. Anyway, the guy up front is on the radio, but he's not the guy who's getting shot at. That's why he sounded so calm. It was horrible chaos, like kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say like movie type situation back in the MRAPs because the lieutenant, and God bless this kid, their commanding officer in those three vehicles that were there, he, because it happens differently to different people, he curled up in the fetal position and was crying in the corner of the MRAP. And then... Uh, one of the sergeants, who um, Buck is his, his name and who I chat with all the time still, he kind of then became the NCO in charge, right? He's the guy. There was another guy, Derek, who if you, like, I would explain Derek as this kid who always wanted to be in the Army, like his whole life. And then he happens to be one of the 16 soldiers that's between these vehicles. Like that oh, that scene in Saving Private Ryan where that guy's walking around and it's just like, slow motion and, and kind of garbled sound, but that guy picks up his arm like he's like he doesn't have any idea what's going on. Well, Derek is outside the vehicles just trying to hook up the disabled MRAP to the one in front of it so they can tow it out. But meanwhile, it's RPGs and heavy machine guns and stuff. And, and you can every time they key the mic, you can hear it, right? No, because the guy I'm talking oh, to is in that side. front. Right. So I can see some things happening, but I don't know the massive amount of confusion and chaos that's going on for the guys in the in the convoy. Like one of the drivers took a round in his helmet, in his Kevlar helmet, like an AK-47 round, and it the Kevlar did its job, but it kicked the round this way, and then it went out the back. So he just had a big, like a big cut and everything here, but he's not, he didn't die, right? Yeah. So luckily the helmet worked. It took us a probably like 15 minutes to figure out what was happening. The JTAC from on the other side of a mountain is still trying to talk to us because the rules of engagement were you had to have a qualified yeah. controller give you clearance to attack a target. He was at a Ford operating base. Yeah, he's yeah. like 7 to 10 miles this way. 
but the radios don't work very well if you get down low through the mountain. So Jimmy Mac is up at like 20,000 feet trying to relay, trying to do what the rules of engagement were to the JTAC, what's happening. We're around the circle. I'm down at 100 feet. I go over a couple times. I'm looking. They say, hey, you know, I didn't know. We never saw muzzle flashes at us, but they said, hey, they're shooting towards you guys too. And these three vehicles are not moving anywhere. And these guys that are inside are, and one outside, but he goes inside. They're not going to, they're not getting out of this. This, the vehicles are getting riddled and getting filled with holes, quite frankly, just because they're taking so many hits. Finally, what happened, the, the thing that cued me in was they shot a smoke grenade. It was a yellow smoke and they shot it up the hill, but this hill's like super, very, very steep on their left-hand side. They're trying to mark the target. So I'm talking to the guy that's around another ridge. He's telling these guys back here, the guys who are really in trouble, to mark a target. And the smoke goes up on the hill, and then it just kind of rolls right back down and lands like five feet from the MRAP. And I'm going, that's a little close. So then they shoot another smoke off the left 10 o'clock of the front vehicle. It's about 60 meters away from the front vehicle. Luckily, it's up the hill a little bit, so that kind of helped us target it and not be really, really close to shooting uh, towards the friendlies. And Jimmy Max like, ask him if he wants us to shoot the smoke. And I say, do you need me to shoot the red smoke? And the guy up in that front vehicle, keys the mic, but somebody in the vehicle with him screams and says, say yes, God damn it, say yes. And that was like, ding. That was like kind of the, the key, okay, I, Jimmy Max, like, you need me to descend. I said, come down here, wedge shooters, guns, on the smoke. Um, and you're to 60 meters, 180 feet, so we're looking out the window. It's like to that black yeah. car. And so yeah. I had never, in all of the times that I have employed with JTEX, I had never had uh, danger close uh, proximity targets. And then I had never had to where I had to uh, declare – Emergency cast packs. with a non-qualified controller, yeah. a.k.a. no controller, because these Army Guard guys didn't, they had never really even seen an A-10 before. And so we declared emergency close air support and danger close. We never got, per the joint pub, we never got any initials because these guys wouldn't have understood what I was going to say anyway. So we just said, here's what we're doing. Rolled in, and I shot uh, I shot 30 millimeter and all of my um, high-explosive rockets. Jimmy Max shot... Uh, two passes of 30 millimeter. He did not shoot any rockets, but the kind of interesting thing is when I've talked to these guys afterwards that like the rockets were the holy cow, the showstopper. It's, I think it's just cause they're loud and they're high explosive rockets. And I may, they maybe hit right where they needed to be because one of the guys, Alejandro Arias, he goes by Musta. He was the 50 cal gunner up in the turret. And when he looks, he like sees me pointing at something 60 meters in front of him, and he's the only guy up and out of a vehicle, and he looks, and he thinks he'd never done any of this. Like, these guys are on their their fourth convoy of, like, a 17-month deployment, and he is, and they're in he the He thinks mi- you're going to shoot him? He thinks I'm shooting him. So he dives into the vehicle, and other guys that were in there are just like, oh, man, it's all good. He goes, no, 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 they're shooting. You know, they're shooting at us. You know, in his best, what he would say, his best Spanglish and so it finally happens that we, we take care of the situation. We get it all uh, taken care of. The biggest part of the story, though, is afterwards, they, about two days later, three days later, they 
all came to Bagram to kind of rekit and refurbish their and their MRAPs. They need they basically needed new MRAPs or they needed new plating on them because they were littered with ho- bullet holes. And I went over. They came over to see us. They came to our squadron. Yeah, they came yeah. to the squadron. We met them, chatted with them, pictures in front of the A10. Everything's cool. They're very, very wired up, though. Like, they're very amped up army guys. Man, did you, you know, I, saw, I shot this guy, you shot that guy. You know, like, it's just nonstop. And I went over to their tent, and it was just this nonstop chatter as they, there's like bullets, like, like ankle deep bullets in their tent, and there's rockets in there and stuff. Like, all their stuff, they just like splayed all over the place, and these guys are still amped up. Well, Fast forward that five years later, Musta marries a senior airman in the Air Force. She gets stationed in the medical group at the hospital here. And he sees an A-10 coming into land, and it basically triggers his PTS. So all these guys have some PTSD, pretty serious PTS, like suicide attempts and or they've had they lost i think two guys from their unit to suicide when they came back one guy i'm sure it had to do with pts one of the guys in their unit was murdered by his father it it's it was a they when they got home there were other things happening and that's what i always try to like the great like you train your whole time like we're talking about you know like that like emergency close air support danger close and everybody lives is like it's basically the Super Bowl of being an A-10 guy, right? You've hopefully helped somebody else get home. But the greatest mission that you ever have. I, t- I told you I'd get you to laugh and cry. <laughs> yeah. I told you. It's a horrible day for them. And that's the lesson. Like, you meet those guys, you're like, oof, you know, because there's some demons. Yeah. For sure. So it's interesting because you – you know, you get an award for it or stuff, but you meet these guys and they're just like, hey, man, like you, you literally saved us. Like that was, that was it. We all came home. We all, you know, had kids and some of them have had kids and gotten divorced and gotten remarried, but they're, they're all doing well. The, the three to four guys that I really like keep in touch with, but it's a very interesting like situation because they got to yeah, live with that. Yeah. Right? They got to live with that. And you live with it in a completely different way because you were in your age can your air conditioned a 10 cockpit and yeah, somebody in Afghanistan shooting at you. Sure. But just the threat to air, unless you're a helicopter guy in Afghanistan, never really became that big of an issue, you know? And that, that one, like I said, that that's a very interesting thing. Cause like I went to Musta's college graduation. I went to one of his, I went to his wedding, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's been a friendship and Jimmy Max in touch with him and, and we have kind of a, like a little bit of a pact where there's been some tough times for those guys where we have to have each other's um, addresses to do a well, like if you need to do a wellness check. That's for for PTS individuals or anybody who's dealing with resiliency and all the stuff the Air Force talks about. If you don't have the person's, lesson learned, by the way, um, if you don't have the person's address or where they physically are, it is virtually impossible for you to get any type of law enforcement guys to go do a wellness check to make sure they're okay. Cause I've gotten some texts every once in a while where I'm like, that sounded horrible and I need to make sure 
or do something to make sure they're okay. So yeah. it, it's for it's always for real for those guys, you know, even after that day and 20 or 15 years later, right? It it has had a profound effect on their lives. Awesome. Um, man, uh, this is Shelly. What do you think about some of these stories? You know, I've heard, I've been in a fortunate position to hear um, just through our job to hear from you guys. And, you know, I think cool is not an accurate term. What you guys do is incredible. And I think to your point, Crack, when you talk about, you know, really as a family, these guys are army guys that you still keep up with. And, you know, just thank you for sharing it. You guys are always humble when you do when you do these things. And, you know, just from like an outsider looking in, we just appreciate your honesty. We appreciate your humbleness. We appreciate your willingness to tell the story. So, yeah, we hope to continue this. And if, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of stories in the wings. So nominate your friends, nominate um, people. And, you know, it can be like anything. I know we have a couple airmen from Africa. Yep. They'd be cool to get on the podcast. Brand, brand new citizens have been here less than a year that just joined our unit. Yeah. Lots of cool ideas that I have for uh, interviewing people, right? Mm-hmm. Like sweetness. Um uh, like like Chief Parks, I want to have him come down and interview him about his podcast, and and he's got an amazing resiliency story. Mm-hmm. That Chevy I, I, <coughs> Chevalier, yeah, or, no, no, or Chevy Oric, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get, I'm trying yeah, to I'm get trying Chevy to get her on. on here. But man, you two guys, <laughs> I tell you what, um, I know she said she would do it as long as she's oh. not um, her face isn't in it. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm hoping, man, because her story's incredible. She doesn't like pictures of herself, but you, man, you thanks for coming, Kuda and Crack. Like you were saying, people are alive because of what you two guys have done, uh, and you guys inspire me, uh, mostly because, you know, I know as a 54- and 58-year-old guy, you could have gone down a different path and maybe done what I'm doing and been a wing commander or a general, but you guys are truly warriors, and you wanted to continue to be warriors. I know Crack's uh, retiring June 6th? June 9th. June 9th. Uh, but you guys wanted to kin- continue to be Warriors and A-10 fighter pilots. Kuda's going to do it for another two, maybe four years. We'll see. Trying to get him an extension past 60, if we can swing that. So, uh, so General He's Healy, not even uh, over here. General Healy, <laughs> if you're listening to that, sign the waiver, please. Um, but, th- yeah, thanks for inspiring me. Uh, and lots of uh, – hopefully people will listen to this and get inspired, man. If you're if you're working in CE and you got to repair a runway, if you're a maintenance or ammo guy, like listening to these stories, like minutes and what you do matters to get us in the air. If you're a security forces guy, LRS, FSS, ops, wherever you work, hopefully you'll be inspired by kind of listening to these stories. And like these guys shared, get, get really good at your craft because minutes and seconds matter to get us out the door, to get us up in the air. And I, that's I've, I've always been uh, one, of, one of the most fun, I think, parts of, all the years I've been finding the A-10 is we got to be an FCF pilot pretty early, and, and I've had a much closer relationship with maintenance, maintenance. just as part of doing that. You've changed tires. You've changed and, engines, right? And I think that has, you know, that's been one of the most uh, most uh, rewarding parts as well to get, you know, you have a, a much closer relationship with maintenance and to see, because most guys just don't, they don't really, I mean, they, you know, in a general way, but they don't really know just how much goes into just flying one a ten for one hour. It's yeah, it's astonishing when, when you actually Kentucky, get in there and see what when what those they Kentucky do. guys came up to like we put them in the simulator and kind of like p- we can put them in Iraq like they can fl- be in the a ten and look at the, the valley vehicles they can like look at it on the map and stuff and see. But they all went to meet our maintenance guys as well. And Chris Barton at the time he's still here, but he was the crew chief of Tail One Two Three, and that's the jet that I was in. Chris does really good models, by the way. If you ever yeah, I awesome. know. 
And awesome, but I but that's the thing I always and we probably need to let them if the guys ever come back up here, let them come to meet some of the newer, younger maintenance guys. But I got in that jet. I got in tail one, two, three. That was the jet I was supposed to fly. I didn't need a red ball. I didn't have any delays like you were talking about because if you talk to Buck or Musta or Derek, they will tell you probably another three to five minutes. They this and this is what they were going to do. They were out of they were running out of ammo and they were going to literally fix bayonets and charge the hill because Buck was in charge and he's like me and my friends here we're not dying in these vehicles. We're not dying in these MRAPs. So we're going to we're going to go out swinging and we're going to charge that hill because we were out they had no other options. So if those jets didn't take off on time and get there, that's why I said seven and a half miles away, it's just was a pure act of God in aviation to be, have us be that close. But th- that's the important thing that the younger now, which we have quite a few more younger active duty maintenance guys, like let them meet some of these guys and go, hey, man, that jet, when it flies well and it flies on time, this is what happens. Totally. And, that, man, this wing's got an awesome history of combat stories like that. And that's why, I, you guys listen out there, that's why I'm fighting really hard to, to get this wing and another fighter mission um, after the A-10. So, hey, thanks again to Bob Jennings and uh, Major Shelley Eckleby for setting us up in the in the room. We're going to continue to do this, guys. I think, uh, hey, we want to communicate to you guys on your phones, man, you you 18 to 30-year-old airmen out there. Uh, my dad still sends me emails that I don't read, and uh, I know you don't read my emails. So I'm trying to get after communicating to you guys on your phones. Hopefully this is be a good aspect of that. So uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear good stories from people in the wing. And uh, thanks for listening to Hogcast and Nasty Time. Nasty Time, yeah. All right. <laughs>